Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 30th, 2017, and my guest is the glorious Alex Guarnaschelli. Alex is a regular judge on Chopped and Iron Chef, and she has been a chef, an executive chef, a sous chef in some of New York City's finest restaurants. Alex, welcome to Econ Talk. Hi. So most of us have never worked in a restaurant, although I did uh, wait tables at Hojo's, uh, which is a blast from the past, uh, about 1969 or 1970. Most people don't even know what Hojo's is, um, Howard Johnson's. But we've never been in a serious restaurant except via movies. And so one thing I'd love to hear from you is I want to start with a sous chef. Uh, tell us what a sous chef does and what is the life of a sous chef in a, in a day-to-day way in a restaurant? Well, I mean, I think a chef, this, to sort of describe the scenario, it's sort of like an episode of Star Trek, you know? So you have the chef, which is kind of Captain Kirk, and then you have a sous chef or a number of sous chefs like Spock and uh, McCoy that really are boots on the ground and are all around the whole spaceship. And that's kind of how most sous chefs function, which means you are dealing with going through the line cooks of prep, the things that have been done in advance for dinner service, lunch service, breakfast, to make sure that everything's on point, fresh, on par, cut properly, cooked properly, if things are pre-cooked. You're probably participating in the purchasing, meaning you're going in the refrigerator and making sure there's a lot of everything that's needed to make the food. And then you're also probably participating in putting together the specials for the day, if there are any, or just the mechanics of the menu, any seasonal changes, any adjustments you make for changes when an ingredient becomes too expensive. You know, you, if you, if you, and you know, of course, because of the nature of your podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking money, when in fact a, a chef always is thinking about money and how to spend as little of it as possible. Um, you know, to, to have strawberries on your menu in New York City in February is not the same as to have them in August. And so a sous chef would more than likely be tracking some of those costs and certainly participating with the chef in curating a menu that's good, but that also obviously is as cost-effective as possible. Um, and, I mean, cooking. I forgot that part. Yeah. Sous chef also cooks. Notice how long it took me to get to the word cooking. So what's a line chef compared to a chef or a sous chef? What's a line chef doing? A line chef is really coming in and has, is responsible for a certain section of the kitchen and therefore a certain um, group of dishes on the menu. Kitchens are most commonly divided by section of the menu, quite honestly. There is traditionally, say, a garmage, which is cold dishes, and in an American-style kitchen could also include desserts. There's a hot appetizer section. Those are the hot apps, crab cakes, spaghetti, what have you, that have to be heated up. 
there's a fish section, there's a meat section. Obviously, there's so many vegetarians now. The fish section or the meat section might very well also have a dish or two that's just purely vegetarian. And so a line chef comes in, say, to the garmager and makes sure that all the ingredients for all the salads and all the cold appetizers are set up and ready. So when that first ticket rolls through the printer, when the first guest's down, they're ready to make it. The image you get of a sous chef in a on a TV show or in a, a movie is uh, surf, someone who is typically abused sure. verbally by a egotistical maniac chef who throws tantr- tan- temper tantrums, um, screams at them, and they they dutifully say, yes, chef, sorry, chef, no chef. Uh-huh. Is that is that true? Is that somewhat accurate? That's a very loaded question you've asked me. Um, it can be true. I think, obviously, television loves to exaggerate for effect. Um, I think we all know that if our jobs were sensationalized on television that we'd love to share how far less compelling and how much uh, redundancy actually goes on in everyone's day-to-day at the office, whether it's a desk or a cutting board. There's certainly tension. You know, the problem with cooking is I can't say to you, I'll get that on your desk in half an hour. I'm not ready to give it to you. Or, gee, I'm 10 minutes late with that email. That doesn't work in a restaurant. It just doesn't work. Someone's sitting there waiting. And if they have to go to the theater, which is the classic pre-theater table that has to come at 5.30 and wants to leave by 6.30 and have three or four courses, you don't have the luxury of saying, hey, could you go tell the guests I'm just not ready to give them their food? And that creates problems. That creates friction. That You know, the person who's responsible to make all those parts grind and work into place to get that plate of food in front of the consumer it, it really all falls on them. And, and I don't know, how would you feel if you had to push and, you know, really drive people and make sure everything was ready and say 40, 50 times a night, you're saying, where is that? I mean, how would you be on the 40th time you were looking for something that wasn't ready? And you can't do it all yourself. I think there's also a fantasy that there's just one chef in every kitchen. There's just one person making everything. I know that was my original fantasy growing up. Oh, there's one person. He probably looks like Santa Claus in my head. (laughs) And he's cooking and prepping and doing everything. And the actuality of the situation is, regardless of how simple or complex the operation, there's a team of people that are theoretically collaborating to get you what you asked for. And then you pay for it. And then they get their paychecks and so on and so on. So you described, I heard you describe, working in a big league restaurant as athletic. It also strikes oh, yeah. me it also strikes me as balletic, ballet like that there's a certain yeah. dance, uh, which I guess is part of the athleticism. So what did you mean by that? I mean it's unbelievable what can go on in a small space. How much can get done is just kinda it, it still sort of astounds me. I walk into the restaurant and there are two hundred 300 people eating. If we have private events on our in our two event spaces and a full dining room, we could talk about feeding up upwards of 200, 250 people in a two, in an hour and a half, two hour period. And there are, you know, there are eight to ten people cooking, including the desserts. There are two to three dishwashers. There are three or four food runners. That's a lot of people. 
that's at least 12 people that you counted on them all getting the work, getting all their stuff done. You counted on all the deliveries being made, everything being prepped. That's a lot of what if. Um, and it's beautiful. When it, when it happens nicely and you see it all come together, it's absolutely beautiful to watch. When it's awful, oh boy, is it awful. But when it's beautiful, you just kind of feel it's a high that you get addicted to. And um, I interviewed Adam Davidson. You know I interviewed Adam Davidson about uh, the movie The Big Short. He was the one of the advisors to the movie, and about I think it was Adam Davidson. I know he was the advisor to the movie. I'm, I'm hoping I got the right episode. But he was talking about how in a movie production there are all these people who are incredibly specialized who do pieces of the production and it just kind of happens because they know their job and there's a huge premium put on and value of somebody who you can count on to do it perfectly and that must be true in your world too there there must be lots of stuff that you don't tell people what to do they know what they're supposed to do they know what's supposed to be where and when is that is that true yeah, there are, um, I'm sure this is true of any field, there are different types of skill sets that you look for. You want people that can, you want someone who can beautifully butcher 30 chickens in half an hour. You want someone who goes into the refrigerator and sees three or four things that aren't really being used that need to be used and combines them into a special for that night. You want someone who can cook 20 steaks perfectly in 10 minutes. So you want different types of skills. It's not just one straightforward skill. And that's true of every of anything, right? There's in a, On a movie set, I imagine there's someone who's brilliant at lighting, someone who's brilliant at sound, makeup, costumes, furniture, or special effects. It's the same. A kitchen is the same, you know? And um, I think one of the most important things I've always tried to stick by is if someone's good at something, chances are they like it, generally speaking. They like it because they're good at it, and they're good at it because they like it. And so when I find someone and I see that they like to do something, I have them do that. And I periodically say, hey, do you still love that? Because if you don't, let's have you try something else so that you don't get bored, you don't fall in a rut or whatever else. Um... But that's really been, that's really what makes the ballet great, is when you say to the dancers, how do your feet feel? You still feel like dancing to this song? Should we change the song? You want to change your shoes? The things that we can change, which benefit, incidentally, the business, diversifying it and having a solid core of things people can come for, but also maybe always having something a little bit new and exciting, it benefits everyone to do that, I think. There's really few things more beautiful in human achievement than mastery, and it's really what you're talking about, right? It just when you have someone Absolutely. who does their job with with excellence, it takes it takes your breath away. Yes, that's a brilliant way to put it. I, I, there's a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, "The Wind Over," and I'm trying to find it. He's he's uh, he's talking about a bird, and I'll find it in a minute. But uh, it's. Uh, yeah, he it takes his breath away. But what I was going to ask you is, are there some skills that frustrate you uh, that are hard, particularly hard to find, and you have to fire someone or they let you down 
because it's just so hard. And when you get that person who knows how to do it, you're just so ecstatic. What are some of those, might those skills be in an in a intense environment like you're talking about? The micro skills you're talking about, what are they for me? Yeah. Like what's a list of the micro the skills key. that Which, make what it are, good? What are, best, what are the most important ones? For me, I think I'm going to say cooking meat and fish accurately. If someone wants a medium rare salmon, if someone wants a well done steak, if someone wants an, uh, a rare bass, if someone wants a medium rare pork chop, those are a lot of nuances. Not only to know how to do them, but to do them under pressure multiple times and get it right every time. That's a big one. And the, the larger, more overarching thing is that, that meat and fish cost a ton of money. Yeah. And so if you don't cook it right and you screw it up and you got to scrap it and do it again, that's a, that's a lot of money. A couple of steaks lost every night over a year. I think I did the math on that once and, and the tens of thousands of dollars in lost revenue was alarming. My friend had a restaurant. He had a, um, deliberately put a table of four by the door where people would sit and answer the phones and take reservations. It was a way of showing how much people wanted to eat there, and it was a very effective little tool until he calculated that he was losing about sixty to $70,000 in annual revenue having a table of four that no one was sitting and eating at. So every steak, every piece of fish is really critical to your bottom line because it's so expensive. So that's the first one. The second one is um, a good pastry chef, which I think really fell out of fashion for a number of years. Um, I think there was a lot of, hey, you know what, let's cut that department and the chef will just do it. You know what, chefs and pastry chefs are not the same animals. It's like saying, you know what, I don't have a horse to ride in the, in the uh, Kentucky Derby, so I'll just ride a zebra. It's not the same type of thinking. It's not the same mindset. It's not the same approach. That's just my opinion, and I don't need anybody to agree with me. Um, but a good pastry chef who's taking care of bread, if you're serving breakfast or other such things, then there are pastries involved, and then there are the desserts on the lunch and the dinner menu. Those are a lot of nuances. Also, you can have a crappy meal and have a great dessert and walk away saying, I feel really great. Dessert has the power to trump all, in my opinion. That's, that's the ace in the hole. But has dessert fallen off in recent years as a, no. as a menu, as, as a, something people order? Well, that's a separate question you're asking me. So I'll get to that. I'll tell you what people are, are eating at, at the restaurant because obviously we print a product mix of everything and we look at what people are eating. We look at trends. We, yeah. you know, what do people like that we're doing? What people don't like? I mean, it's a great way to take a restaurant's temperature all the time, which I think is important. Take your own temperature. You know, it's not pretty. Half the time you probably have a fever, but at least you know where you're at. Um, some other micro skills, a really good dishwasher is so underrated. <laughs> it's a skill to wash things, clean them, not have residual soap, let me understand this. You have the greatest cook in the world and you have the best cut of steak in the world and you've got the most beautiful soap. But if the pan's filled with soap or it's dirty, what does all that other stuff matter? What directly touches the meat, no matter how good it or the cook is, is, is going to ruin it. And, and the other thing is just um, keeping the place clean. That's a big part of making food taste good. Um, what other micro skills? Putting I away food and you... Yes. No, I, I want to go back to the empty table. Uh, one of the things okay. that, that, as an economist, that always fascinates me, and I heard this from Earl Thompson, uh, UCLA economist, who argued that the markup on food is related to how long it takes to eat it. 
not just the cost of the ingredients, but that the basically what you're doing when you're sitting in a restaurant is you're renting the table, and you can't. It's not so nice to sit at a table with a meter running. So restaurants through a variety of maybe not even realizing it, but tend to charge more for things that take longer to eat. Obviously, take longer to prep as well because there's more labor time. But the key point is that turnover of the table, how long you sit there. If a, if a restaurant turns over three times a night versus five, it's an enormously expensive thing to have a leisurely meal. So I'm curious how you deal with that with your staff, with your wait staff. How do you you want people to have a great time. You want them to linger over great wine and great desserts. You also want to get that table for the next person. So how do you, that's an art. I mean, you're talking, you really are. You are managing to touch on the very unromantic underbelly of restaurant dining. Um, you know, I do find that in New York City, there are so many other factors that go into this specific aspect of a restaurant. My restaurant's in Midtown Manhattan. People are either going to the theater, so they have their own built-in timer, and they're going to get up, and they're also going to eat early in the evening, which you obviously love, <laughs> right? You love that 5 o'clock seating, right? Yeah. You, you have people that in Midtown are getting off work, and they're having a business dinner. They're having some drinks and a steak, and they want to go home. They don't want to sit there with their, even if they like their colleagues, it's neither here nor there, they just don't want to be out, particularly on a weeknight, really, really late. Um, so in Midtown Manhattan, you have a lot of things that, sorry for the fire engine. It's all right. Makes it's just it, to add to the... Yeah, a little real. It's yeah, it sort of makes it authentic. Yeah. Um, in Midtown Manhattan, you have a lot of built-in constraints, which are actually kind of a blessing in disguise when all is said and done. I, my restaurant is, I've had uh, worked... Butter is 16 years old. When I started out at Butter, it was about a year plus old, and it was a big nightlife spot. So our first customer, our first customer, was often not until 8 o'clock at night. Mm. And we would serve dinner. I mean, my rule with the kitchen was it closes when the last person who would like to eat here finishes ordering. You know, that's yeah. that's that's when my kitchen closes. Um and that would be very late. So peop the cooks would come later, it would stagger in later, and it would go later. Tell me how bizarre it was when I took that exact kitchen staff, we moved the restaurant to Midtown. Our biggest dinner rush is at 6 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Those same cooks were used to rolling in at 6 and not having to serve food until 8 or 9 even sometimes. So it was like we had to retrain ourselves, first of all. But second of all, um, with the nightlife stuff, I also had a speakeasy with my partners where someone would be on stage singing mm -hmm. and no one would get up. And we had a ton of celebrities. So you'd be sitting in a room with a bunch of actors or musicians or whatever else. You'd order another 15 or $20 drink and that was just wasn't going to pay the rent on the fact that we would often lose half a seating because people just wouldn't get up. Now, so, yeah, there's an art to it, and then sometimes uh, there's nothing you can do about it. You also have people that just come in, they don't order a lot, and they linger over their food. You have people that order an enormous steak, eat it in five minutes, and leave. Um, what we try to do is just 
the best we can to make guests feel, hey, look, this is yours, relax, enjoy yourself. We think about how things are eaten, how much food to give, how long is it going to take to eat it. I mean, butter is just not the kind of place where you take a stopwatch to a bowl of grits, and, <laughs> yeah. you know. And so. you know what? Um, the way we carry that really is more diners at once. In other words, our events business, which is really critical to, um, you know, surmounting the rent and all the other costs. I, I, I don't think it's any newsflash to you. Um, opening a restaurant in New York City just isn't even what it used to be. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Before we go on, I want to give you the line from Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, it's hard to believe this was written in the 19th century. It's so beautiful. It's, he's talking about seeing a falcon in flight. He says, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. I just love that line. Uh, I want to talk about, so your restaurant is called Butter, which is one of the greatest names of all time for a restaurant. Makes you hungry just, just thinking about it. Uh, it is great. How much time do you spend worrying about your competitors? If a new restaurant opens around the corner, do you drop in to see what they're doing, what their prices are? No. You can't really no. drop in anyway because you're recognizable. So you don't worry about that. You just yeah. try to, You just try to get Butter right. Well, yeah, I, it, honestly, I, 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 I spend so much time worrying about the restaurant itself. Um, I found that if I'm spending a lot of time worrying about my competitors, it probably means I'm procrastinating on something about the actual restaurant I'm a part of, and then I should probably face reality and face whatever it is that I'm trying to avoid by worrying how much the guy down the street is charging for a sea bass. What's the hardest part of that experience of running butter? What's... You say you should be worrying about it. What would be a worry that that's keeping you up at night? Keeping the staff satisfied and happy with their work makes the food taste good. I don't need anybody to agree with me. It's just what I feel. And that's what I spend a lot of my energy and time doing. Making sure cooks in particular are stimulated, that they feel a part of the conversation. It sounds a little kumbaya um, in the face of so much math. But it works. And, you know, I think an employee who feels as satisfied as is possible um, is going to give more to the business. And that, that trickles down to how much money you make. It really does. You know, I, for example, I'll go to a bakery and I'll buy a dozen cookies and the person gives me 14 instead of 12 and says, don't worry about it. I think to myself, Either they like me and they want me to have more cookies because they're good people or they feel underpaid and they think if they give a little bit extra product, they're going to get an extra tip. You know, there's a number of nuances as to why something like that goes on. Um, and you have all those varying degrees in a restaurant. You know, you have a, a waiter who tries to tack on an extra side dish or tries to add cheese and add this and add that. That costs the restaurant, but the waiter doesn't charge the consumer. You know, like, oh, no problem. I'll add that on. What are they not getting that they're trying to, you know, make up for? Yeah, I, I often, I try to, I turn those down as a customer. I often say, no, thank you, because it's stealing. <laughs> uh, I get yeah. it, but uh, it's. Um, it, 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 I, it isn't stealing because, you know, it's like cab drivers in New York City. You get in a cab and they drive around like there are no other cars. They drive around like it's the Indy 500. It's really, it really comes down to being so deep in a context that you lose a sense of it, I think, to a large extent. And I think when you're doing, you know, a, 
and you have a lot of guests every single night over and over and over again, you're like, ooh, it's not going to just add a slice of cheese. So a lot of it I, I want to believe and, and I like to believe is innocent and just goodwill because butter is a very sort of goodwilled place. Uh, it would not be open without the staff and all the people that are so dedicated to making it work every day. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't exist. So I have to believe in that kind of greater good. I, I really do. You know, I don't mean to sound hokey. No, no. But that's what it's all about. Those kumbaya things work. That's what it's all about. The human. Uh, yeah. Two people on a, on a date in your restaurant. What's the a nice meal? So they're going to have wine. They're going to have an appetizer. They're going to have dessert. What's the tab going to run roughly? My guess is going to be if they each have a couple glasses of wine or a bottle of wine and a steak. I don't know, two fifty. So it's upscale. Two hundred could get to three hundred. Depends on your choices, but there is also a varying degree of choices for that very reason. I don't like the concept of a restaurant that literally you walk in and you you just put your wallet down. <laughs> You know, no matter what. I feel trapped and strangled by that concept. You mean I just give you my credit card as I, when I walk by the uh, maitre d' and say, enjoy? Yeah, I'm just going yeah, to actually give you the deed to my, yeah. I'm going to give you the deed to my car and I'm going to have dinner. Yeah, do you, I don't, so how I do think you, there should be some bandwidth. Yes, how do you worry about that number? Um do you think about some? How often do you think about changing your prices? How often do you think about changing your menu? Um, are there rules of thumb? The are there rules of thumb in the business? Um, I mean, the rules of thumb in the business, I think, pertain to the type of restaurant you're running. Obviously, a Japanese restaurant that's serving sushi, um, a Mexican restaurant that's serving um, barbacoa, an Italian restaurant that's serving. Um, lasagna and spaghetti is not going to be the same, you know, across the board. So I think a number of factors come into play. What are sort of the building blocks of your cooking style that you need and how much do those cost? What role does seasonality play in what you're doing? I think seasonality plays a role in all cuisines, but I think you can structure a restaurant. For example, if you have a, a store and you're selling banh mi sandwiches, I don't, I don't think the seasonality of chicken livers is as critical as the seasonality of something like asparagus. So Butter is a green market-driven restaurant. It's French, fundamentally. I call it French-American, French techniques, American ingredients. Um, it definitely has a splash of Italian in there, um, and that definitely has a lot to do with the fact that I grew up, I'm Italian-American. Um, both my parents are Italian, but I trained for many years in France, and I spent a lot of time working with fresh produce and markets. So it sort of uh, makes sense. So for my um, rule of thumb, have we changed the menu? I would say we changed 20 to 30% of the menu eight to 10 times a year on average. We will remove a dish and put something else on here and there as well. Um, desserts change with, with similar frequency. The lunch menu is pretty much similarly, although lunch is pretty, it's probably more stable because I do find lunch is a different animal. You know, people come in, they want to have a salad. They want to go back to their desk. They're thinking about the fact that they've got another meal on their hands, which is dinner. And if they have a really long day of work, I, I generally think they want to regard dinner as the recreational part of their day calorically. Yep. Um, 
So those are my rules of thumb generally. Seasonality is really important, I think. So I'm, let's and shift, keeping up with that can be hard. Let's shift gears. Uh, I have a lot of trouble going to movies because if there's any economics in it, it usually drives me crazy. Uh, when you okay. watch when you watch food movies, restaurant movies, food uh-huh. movies, um, is there something that drives you crazy when you watch them? And you go, I, and someone says, "Wasn't that great?" And you say, "I couldn't enjoy it because that part about the whatever was so unrealistic." It, I was offended. I don't like when chefs are off on weekends to go on dates and participate in the romantic thread of the movie. I think that um, that's just crazy to me. You know, what What really good chef has Saturday night off to have a hot date and isn't worried that 18 things are going wrong? I didn't have a Saturday night, Saturday night off for years. And when I did get one, it felt so odd I couldn't enjoy it. I don't think any chef truly enjoys a Saturday night. They're either in the restaurant angry that they're not off or they have the night off and they're outside the restaurant drinking and worrying because they're not there. <laughs> That's the plight of a chef. And we all, in every profession has their moment in the week or their nuance that someone never enjoys. I would say that's totally unrealistic. I think, um, I think uh, everybody's sort of um, getting along and um, just sort of seamlessly um, uh, and just seeing that flaming pan and that sprinkle of powdered sugar that we so often see in movies as a representation of a kitchen kind of amuses me. You know, it's very hard work. It's very physical. Um, there's a beauty to it, but maybe not a cinematic beauty in the classical sense necessarily. So that's something that I kind of resent. I like movies like Big Night yeah. where, you know, a fight, a fight can just ratchet itself to a complete standstill inside a restaurant. I think a movie like No Reservations where someone gorgeous like Catherine Zeta-Jones magically gets an an Aaron Eckhart stunning sous chef and they fall in love and everything works out. She also somehow on a chef's salary lives on a gorgeous corner apartment on Bleecker Street and strolls down the block with her poodle and her Porsche, which is also sort of perplexing to me (laughs) considering um, the economics of being a chef. When I chose to chef or cook, I should really say, um, when I was uh, just graduated college and I said to my dad, I think I want to be a chef. And he said, um, I have, he said, I have two comments for you. He said, the first is, do you want to eat Thanksgiving dinner with your family on Thanksgiving or do you want to cook it for total strangers? And that was, by the way, brilliant and true. I, I, I spent many a Thanksgiving cooking for strangers instead of at the table with my family. And the second thing he said is, you've chosen an interesting field because it's still somewhat the wild, wild west. He said, and you can make um, very little or an awful lot of money. He said, and that isn't necessarily true of a lot of other fields of work. True. And he was right. Yeah. All of that was really right. I was a little too young and... Um, irreverent, obviously. I mean, they go hand in hand to really hear him. But I did think of that many times. And he was right. He was really right. Parents are always right. Yeah, I certainly agree with that as a father of four. Uh, There must be some satisfaction, though, often in making strangers delighted by your your work on Thanksgiving. That's something. 
Um, the satisfaction, uh, you know, I'll just give you my opinions and do, do with them what you will. I truly think, after all this experience, that the satisfaction has to be for you. It has to come from within you and just, you know, like a boomerang, you throw it and it comes right back to you. I really, I think it has to, um, you have to go in and work really hard and try to get everything as right as you possibly can each day, consistently, steadily, time and time again, tirelessly, um, and be satisfied with that. The satisfaction is inconsistency and hitting your mark as frequently as you possibly can. I think that's, the, and then the guests follow suit. That doesn't mean I'm not constantly thinking about the guests. I am. Everything that I've done in a restaurant, good or bad, has always been intended for the guests. Well, I think the sort of, the drive to do it only comes from inside of you. The drive to do that, the desire. Uh, it's one of the, I think, deepest parts of the nature of work, which is yes, we often forget the ultimate effects of our work. I mean, right now I'm working really hard to have, to do a nice job interviewing you, which is challenging. I'm not a, you know, I've, I, I had to, uh, I did a little bit of research and a little bit of thought and a lot more thought than I do for most of my interviews because this is off the beaten track a little bit. And I don't spend sure. a lot of time thinking about whether people enjoy it or not. I assume that there's that connection like you do. You nail the steak and you know the customer's happy, but you're really focused on the steak. Uh, but ultimately you have to focus on the customer because you won't do a good job with the steak. And so it's just, it's a, that's a complicated back and forth for me. And when I get emails from listeners about what they've learned, um, it's like, oh yeah, right. I'm not just talking to Alex Gornishali on a Friday at morning. We're actually being listened to by a lot of people, thankfully. And it's hard to keep that in mind sometimes. It's, it's an interesting back and forth. Yes, and then when you talk particularly about, it all boils down to a steak. Um, you are also talking about your idea of medium rare and a general idea of medium rare and all those varying degrees of medium rare. You know, there's, I'm making this for myself the way I want it, the way I know it's good, and then, and then there's, hey, this is how most people actually like it. A little less salt, a little less vinegar. A chef's palate the amount of salt that I have to use, I get up in the morning and I have an English muffin almost every day. I put salt on my toast with butter because I, I, I want that. That's what my palate is asking. Oh, there's a little, I wish there was a little more salt in this. Um, I ate dinner in a restaurant last night and I thought the food was too salty. And I said to my dining companions, if I think it's too salty, yeah. it's too salty. So there's there's that other thing to reconcile at the end of the day, which is a chef who's an artist with a vision. Say that again. Say that anything. again. I lost you there. A, a chef. chef. There's a there's there's a nuance there, which is there's a chef who's who's always theoretically anyway an artist with a vision, sees things a certain way, who sees into ingredients in a particular way, and then there's the sort of reception of that by the general public. Oh, the food's too salty there. Oh, the food's too heavy there. Oh, the food's too dietetic there. Oh, I, I don't like the desserts. And sort of paying attention to those trends. And then you sometimes you don't feel like such an artist. How about that? You go into the refrigerator and you have 10 cases of cauliflower because you overordered or because you thought you needed it for that party of 300 that ordered cauliflower soup. 
And so now the special is cauliflower for three days. And people say to me, how do you come up with those ideas? Hey, sometimes I don't come up with them in such a romantic way. Sometimes I do, by the way. When I see that the fridge is humming along and that everything is good and that there's nothing kind of hanging around or that I'm worried about, yeah, I go into the fridge, I look all around, and I say, wow, this is really fun. Is this really what I earn a living doing? And then there are sometimes when I say, hey, you know what? I've got 30 portions of bass in there left over from a lunch party. That's the special tonight. How can we make it great? Now, I'm operating on the premise that the bass I bought is wonderful. So it's not like I'm trying to unload something bad. But the idea that we just freely go in and choose um, the way one might do at home with their refrigerator. I think people assume it's somewhat like that. Well, we always have leftovers at home, right? You're always worrying about that quart of milk or the rest of that bag of celery at the bottom of your crisper drawer, or that weird ingredient that you bought on a whim at the supermarket that's sitting in the fridge looking at you like, what are you going to do with me now? We have the same challenges in a restaurant, only whether we do or don't make money depends on how artfully um, and methodically, really, we use all those things or not. Tell me something you're proud of like that, where you created something magical out of a, a purse out of a sow's ear. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think chefs do a lot of that. I think it, I, I, I said the, just the other day that I feel one of a chef's many responsibilities, um, two of the biggest are philanthropy and also, uh, you know, finding the nobility in ingredients that are less prized and less affordable, I mean, more affordable. Um, it's not just the scoop of caviar or the lobster or the langoustine that needs to be, you know, sort of treated by the most skilled hands. Yes, that's true, but it's also things like oxtails, pig ears, rutabaga, the less sexy um, foods of the bunch. What do you do when you have an, uh, a mushy batch of peaches? What do you do when apples are mealy? That, that's really where technique can trump uh, an ingredient. I always say, you know, if the ingredient isn't coming to you, you got to go to it, and there's got to be that constant push-pull. So let me think, what am I particularly proud of? Hmm. I mean, I would say one of the things that we do periodically at the restaurant that I'm most proud of is we buy a whole animal and we make a commitment to cooking and using all of it. I know nose to tail, it's overused as a concept. Um, But we got a whole pig and we just served a series of dishes. We cured some of it, we, we brined some of it, we smoked some of it, and we served it until we really made our way through the whole animal and served it all. And then what I discovered is that you could then turn an experience like that into somewhat of one of the many threads that goes into the philosophy of a restaurant. So when we get ahead of broccoli, hey, let's make um, a little salad with the pretty little florets at all the edges of the heads of broccoli. Let's make soup from the middle part. Let's peel the stems and make a pesto. And you end up with this nose-to-tail philosophy with something like broccoli, which is absurd, right? Because yeah. broccoli that's obviously awesome. doesn't have noses and tails. But it, it, that sensibility, that's something that I'm really proud of and something that I think is useful in, in this day and age when chefs have to, first of all, minimize waste and second of all, maximize profitability off everything. Let's talk about your um, your own eating habits for, for a minute uh, and, and your own your day life. You said you were out at a restaurant last night. How often do you eat in restaurants versus cook for yourself? I try to eat out as little as possible. 
how about that? I probably cook for myself 30% of the time. 30, yeah, 30. It varies. And some weeks, not at all. And some weeks, it's 50 to 60%. So it varies. Um, my own eating habits are a disaster. They always have been. Um, the reason I agreed to, to, to participate in this podcast is because of your deranged relationship with potato chips. And I was really drawn to you by how piercingly intelligent you are and how connected you are to your emotions and how despite all of that, you will lose yourself at a bodega in a bag of potato chips. That is me to a T. You and I share that common thread. Um, I can see certain trigger foods in the supermarket and there's no, there's no, there's no getting at me. There's just no way anything, no amount of intelligence, restraint, therapy or anything else will do. So, um, I have probably struggled all along with just eating three square meals. I don't even kind of understand that concept. I think a lot of chefs are grazers and nibblers and tasters. That's yeah. just how we go through it. You know, I'm, I'm having to let go of this fantasy that no matter what I do, I get three meals. Well, if you eat all day and you still give yourself three meals, we know where that goes. Yeah, I like when, I like when my wife says, when I say something like, gee, I wish I could have some X, and she said, and I'm being whimsical. I'm not really longing for it. She says to me, are you hungry? And I said, of course not. I like, want to eat. <laughs> Why are those related? Right. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand that that was a prerequisite. The other thing is this idea that dessert, you're never hungry. You know, I turn to my pastry chef all the time and I say, here's something no one ever says. I'm starving. Let's have dessert. Yeah. <laughs> so you, there's a whole other set of sort of buttons on the keyboard to push to put a successful dessert in front of a consumer. And I'm often thinking about that also because I just, I love dessert. I love a great dessert. So I have a sweet tooth. I'm erratic. I'm unreliable. I drink way too much coffee. I drink a lot of tea. I grew up in a house. My father always makes tea. Very strong, distinctive teas. A lot of Lapsang, Souchong, Pouillere, um, Earl Grey, uh, Jasmine, just a lot. Um, I think those really contributed to my um, passion or sense of smell and how um, just what a sensory experience to me. Smelling the, a really nicely brewed cup of tea and then having hot liquid, which is so comforting, and then taste. That's a lot, you know? So I drink a lot of coffee and a lot of tea. I love the aromatherapy and the temperature. I like hot things. I like hot food. I should, um, I should tell listeners that the potato chip aspect of my life that Alex is yes, alluding to. I didn't is, know you were willing to share. Yeah, well, we both were on a podcast called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It's scheduled to air this fall, and I'll if you follow me on Twitter, uh, folks, I'll, I'll tell you when that comes out. But I talked about potato chips drawing on my Brendan O'Donohoe ex, uh, episode, which many of you still love, listen to and still love. I'll put a link up to that in, in this episode. Uh, I want to ask you a question about about your again your eating habits. Do people cook for you, and do they? Because if if you came to my house, it would be a frightening thing, right? I mean, I, there are a couple things I know how to make, and there's probably I like to think twenty things my wife makes that are that are first rate. But cooking for a chef is very intimidating. Does anyone cook for you who isn't a chef? Um, the people do. Um, I don't know. I think they think they're going to enjoy it. And then when I arrive, they're <laughs> nervous. Yeah. Some people love the challenge. 
some people make a hundred things and ask me how it tastes and if they should be a chef. It all depends on where that person is coming from. I will tell you the most relaxing for me is when another chef invites me over and just make something super simple like a roast chicken. I, I have, I'm friends with Michael Simon. He's a chef on the two. He's from Cleveland. He has a number of um, restaurants. When he invites me over for lunch, or dinner, or whatever, and he just makes a bunch of stuff, and we eat, and it's always so delicious. I mean, above and beyond. But we just, you know, it's sort of like, hey, we're both off duty. You know? Yeah. I always joke, do you think a cab driver drives around his neighborhood on his day off? <laughs> you know, chefs just love to be cooked for. They deserve it. Yeah. Um, and, we're, and, we're, and we're not getting that. So I don't know. I think people like it in their mind, but no, I don't get many invitations. How about that? So you mentioned I should get more, shouldn't I? I think you should. I'm well, a you're good welcome. Person. Next time you're in Washington D.C., you'll you'll let me know and I'll, and I'll cook for you. Uh, I have a big green egg, so I, I, it's hard to ruin. Uh, there are many things I, I can not ruin on a big green egg, so, and it, one of them's like a roast chicken. Uh, I butterfly it. I think you'd like it. Uh, so you mentioned big uh, big night, which is one of my favorite uh, food movies. And that movie centers around mm-hmm. that movie centers around two things: risotto and hot dogs. But the hot dogs are just a, ch- a throwaway line. Uh, I heard you say when we talked before that you can never cook risotto again. And why is that? Well, I don't think people realize how many times we could we potentially do something, right? So I've made risotto so many thousands of times. I've batch cooked it. I've served it all night. I've had to taste it and taste it and taste it all night long, serving it in. I ended up making risotto in two different very high-end restaurants, one three-star Michelin in Paris and one person in New York City. I ended up, by a series of unfortunate events, (laughs) making risotto pretty much steadily for about five and a half years. And that's every night dinner service. And I just can't. When I see that box of arborio rice in the supermarket, you know, it didn't do anything wrong. It's just a sweet little box of very delicious rice. I just run in the other direction. Run for the hills, screaming. Right into the cookie aisle for comfort. What's your go-to dish if you want to amaze me? What is the biggest wow that uh, has the least chance of failure? That's going to just blow blow me away. What would you make? Well, I'm yeah, I'm a big fan of. Um, I'm really a big fan of sort of the aw shucks school of thought on that. So I would probably skip the caviar and the lobsters and go straight for a roast chicken or a whole roasted duck that's glazed with honey and vinegar. Um, Probably, I like a lot of really earthy ingredients. I love potatoes and onions and shallots and garlic. I mean, you give me a bunch of leeks and lock me in a room and I'm really happy. So I would probably go in that direction. Um, And just maybe, I think impressing people with more everyday ingredients and a little bit of extra technique is definitely the best. So now I'm at your house. I'm a weekend guest, and uh, I don't feel so well. I'm just, I'm just, I'm sad. I'm a little bit depressed, having a tough time at work, say, or with a family issue. And you're going to make me some comfort food, and you've got a comfort food cookbook. What are you going to make me? 
Well, I mean, I have to tell you that would vary from per- that's a case by case basis. You can't you can't ask a chef to give a blanket comfort answer. So it would depend on the person. I mean, first of all, I think lasagna cures everything. Um, strangely, so does eggplant parmesan. So I'm really a fan of Italian American food as being the number one go to source of comfort. The other thing is, when all else fails, just bake a giant cake and frost it with many layers of buttercream. If the person doesn't like chocolate, go vanilla. Otherwise, it's vanilla cake with chocolate frosting, and it's several layers, and it sits out on the counter, frosted, and gets nice and goopy and room temperature-y, and then you have a big slice of it with either ice-cold milk, coffee, um, a small glass of dark rum, or possibly all three. And what do you make for your daughter when you want to cheer her up? Um, I actually am trying to teach my daughter not to associate emotion with food so much. Yeah, good luck with that. I'm failing miserably. <laughs> um, the things my daughter really loves are prosciutto and poached eggs. So I would say always. My daughter, I'm much more of a person who gets lost in a love of garlic bread than I would a steak. She loves steak and potatoes. So I would say if I roll up and she has poached eggs and prosciutto and maybe some sushi for lunch and a steak and some crushed potatoes for dinner, I won't hear from her in the good sense I, I of think, not hearing from her. I think, it's in, I, I think it's in the movie Chef. I think he makes his kid a grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, so I think in the, in the it's interesting in the – in the food movies, the chef always makes something unbelievably basic like scrambled eggs. And then we as the viewer start to imagine that these are the greatest scrambled eggs or the greatest grilled cheese sandwich in the history of the world. Which reminds me that your world of, of Chopped and uh, Iron Chef, how crazy it is that we live in a time where you can watch people cook. You don't get to taste the food and you still watch. <laughs> Well, I always say, you can see it. You can you can witness the emotion and witness the technique and the cooking and the food. Um, and you can hear it. The sounds of it cooking, the sounds of the kitchen, the play-by-play commentary. You can't smell it and you can't taste it. And so when I am either judging, I am attempting to fill in those blanks for people watching. This is what it tastes like. This is what it smells like. Yeah. And, and I realize those two senses are, in, are, are deeply intertwined. Or I am trying to illustrate with what I'm doing. Because I, I, I don't think there's any point in those shows in most of you feel brought in and invested. But yeah, it's crazy. You're right. It's literally like, you know, you go to the movies, but the screen is blank, in a sense. Because there's so little, it's, we're not living in it. In actuality, but, but, but come on, I mean, watching it, what's really the difference between watching a soccer match and watching an episode of Iron Chef America? What's the difference? I mean, is there much, isn't it athletes running around? Yeah, there are onions and knives and there's an occasional wild salmon floating by, but isn't it really fundamentally that same feeling? Don't you have somebody that for whatever set of reasons with the layer of emotion and food and your personal history, there's someone you feel invested in. There's someone you identify with. There's someone you don't like. Um, it just becomes like a Star Wars soccer match. Who there's are, a Darth Vader. There's a Luke Skywalker. <laughs> it's all the same. Who, who are your um, heroes? 
Do you have any? You like Jacques Pepin? You like I really Julia love Child? Bobby Flay. I really love Bobby Flay. He's fantastic. It's He's, and it's nice to admire somebody who's living, vibrant, and you know, almost the same age. We're all more of a similar age. Um, so I like, I love him. I think his drive. Um, he's committed and he says he's going to do something. He does it. I like, I like that. He's got a lot of kind of, I call him Captain America. Um, and I think that's about right. Um, it's a very high compliment. I love Julia Child. Yeah. I love Julia Child. Of course. I really do. I grew up watching my mother watch her shows on TV, write down what she did and then go in the kitchen and cook it. I mean, my mother was one of those people still is. Um, and I love that. So yes, I love Julia Child. I love, I love James Beard, Craig Claiborne, Pierre Frenet, this whole school of people that were sort of documenting French cooking in America and how to go about it. Um, and I watched my mother cook all that food. So that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, but I have, a, I have a lot of different people I like, so many different reasons to be drawn to people. I like Anne-Sophie Peek. She's a chef who took over a three-star Michelin in France for her father and for her legacy, for her family. Um, and she's running a staff of, you know, 35 men and she's got three Michelin stars. I think she's amazing. So, um, have you ever eaten a three star Michelin restaurant where you went, eh, you don't have to name it. You know, I, no, no, I hear you. Um, definitely, you know, sure. I've, I've had the privilege when I lived in France for seven years and I made very little money, but what money I did make at that time, I saved it. Um, if you work uh, 100 hours a week, the upside is you don't spend your paycheck because you can't. There's no nowhere to spend it. And it's really funny, right? I know yeah. it's funny, but it's actually totally true. Yeah. Never did I make so little and save so much. Yeah. So ironic to me. It's like Shakespearean. So what money I did have, I spent every few months I would go somewhere super fancy and just eat in an effort to learn and whatever else. Um, and sure definitely been underwhelmed, but more underwhelmed by a dish and not so much by a whole meal or a whole experience. Uh, let's talk about Bobby Flay for a second. Uh, Bobby Flay has a show where you try to, it's a, it's a brilliant conceit. Uh, you pick your best dish and he's got to compete by matching it. Uh, what would you make to beat Bobby Flay? I've actually beaten Bobby Flay twice, and I made lobster Newberg. I actually made lobster Newberg, which is an old school lobster classic, and I made sole almondine, which is another old school classic. Yeah. I definitely go for those kind of Frenchy classics, um, but make no mistake about it. Um, he's such an unbelievable cook. He really is. I mean, people say to me, how can he always win as much as he does? He just does. He's that good. Even when he's making something that he's not familiar with, somehow he pulls it off. You know, he's a flavor master. Um, and that's one of the reasons I admire him so much. He's also just a good dude. Do you know what I mean? On top of all the skill, he's a good guy. Pretty. Yeah, it's rare. Pretty enviable. Yeah. Have you lost to him? I have. On Iron Chef America, I've competed against him. I com Jeffrey Zakarian and I competed against him and Michael Simon, and uh, we lost. And we and Jeffrey and I were pissed. That took a couple of martinis to get past. That's pretty impressive. That's a very low, it's a low bar to get over it. Uh, 
but you still like him mm-hmm. even too. That's very nice. But you got this. Yeah, you got these two le- victories. That's 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 right. There's something. Yes, I love Michael Simon. I love Bobby. I love a lot of people that I work with. Really, I don't. I like everybody. It's a privilege to be on television. So I'll take it. Yeah, that's cool. Let's talk about something a little serious for a minute. Not that this hasn't been serious, but something a little more, I don't know, big picture-y. You mentioned that you keep track of what people eat and you look at trends, of course, in your own restaurant. And that's you're in a particular environment. You're in New York City, which is very specialized for all kinds of reasons. But are there things going on in the food world that that are dramatically different today than, say, three, five, obviously 20 years ago? Eating in America has changed so much in the last 50 years, but even in the last 20, I think it's probably from your perspective, it's changed a lot. Talk about what some of those trends are in terms of what people like to eat, what they care about emotionally. I recently had Tamar Haspel on the program, and we talked about people's concerns about animals and, um, and animal welfare. What are some of the issues that you see both in your restaurant and outside it that, that interest you? I mean, that's a big question. Um, I definitely think people are eating more healthfully. I definitely think people care more about the food chain. Where did the food begin and how did it get on my plate? And what does that mean? And I don't just mean in terms of taste, but, you know, is it organic? How was it raised? How was it grown? Were there pesticides? So many different factors. I don't think we really considered so many nuances when biting into a piece of cheese or um, a bread with a smear of butter at the beginning of a meal or a salad. Um, I do think that people like what they like. And that I, 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 I sort of relish in the fact that people still eat French fries. People still eat steak. People still want mac and cheese. People still want those foods um, a lot of the time. I think there's definitely a call for more diversity. I don't think you can get away with a menu that's so simple or that doesn't offer more choice. I think that food has gotten more complex and more simple, both. The middle ground is less popular. I'd say it's either, you know, a slice of tomato with a sprinkle of salt from Sweden with the blessing from a chef from Denmark, um, you know, that is, has burned rosemary on top of it versus a dish that's like a 10,000 layer lasagna and it's, you know, the size of half of Texas. <laughs> I think we like to sensationalize. I think that's part of our culture. And, and I love that, by the way. I think people will pay more for something of quality more so than in the past. I like to believe that. I think that we have our national treasures, our junk food, and I think people also accept that. I think there's just a more of a, I don't think people feel so much like they have to eat the same exact thing every day. One day they may have this, the next day they may have that. Sometimes I think that goes too far. When I see, for example, a Chinese restaurant that also has sushi and banh mi, and um, bibimbap, I'm thinking they're mashing 18 cultures into one. You know, so like, oh, we're just going to have an Asian dinner. And those kind of nuances of the different countries and cuisines kind of get pushed off. And it all becomes this hodgepodge. That, I think, is a shame. Because I think that, first of all, street food is so exciting. 
And second of all, the foods and ingredients and flavors unique to each culture are just such a great way to celebrate their uniqueness. I don't like when that gets all mashed together. There's a lot of mashups. You know, your laundry detergent has to have your air freshener in it. You know, everything has got to be two for the price of one. And that part with food, I don't always love its effect. What are some of your other pet peeves about restaurants or food? I don't think putting bacon on everything is a solution. I think it really actually um, degrades and demeans bacon. There are 18 ways to make bacon. And so each one, again, is nuanced and belongs, I think, in a certain context. I think there are certain foods that really bring bacon to life. If you're going to eat it, you should really enjoy it. I think when an ingredient becomes so ubiquitous, it get, it, it, it's not like Lady Gaga. It, just, it doesn't have to go everywhere. It can have its specific place where it belongs. I appreciate the restraint when it's not on everything. So that's a pet peeve. Um, I don't like when purveyors try to sell me a product by telling me the 10 chefs that are using it that therefore makes me want to theoretically use it. I feel like I would like to be free to decide whether I think something's good or not and not add the layer of worrying that my colleagues are or are not using the same thing or thinking that it's good. What would be an example Um, of that? What would be an example of something that, quote, everyone's using right now, you should be using it? I'm going to just say a trend. I notice, and and this has gone on, this is not new, but it's just something I'm seeing a lot now, taking a bottle of olive oil and finishing a dish by drizzling it with a lot of it. I don't understand that. If it belongs or if it's needed or if you made the dish with the intention of doing that all along, okay, I get it. But sometimes people will make a butter-basted fish with herbs and whatever else and then drizzle it with the olive oil. And I don't really understand that. Conversely, I absolutely love that we come to recognize olive oil as as something that is often a finishing ingredient that we prize, that is very hard to make. It takes nine pounds of olives to make one quart of olive oil. This is an ingredient that we should prize and cherish. So I love the idea that we don't cook it or heat it or denature it, but we use it as something that's finishing, that's gorgeous, that we're going to fully enjoy. Um, But the gratuitous drizzle of that or of truffle oil or something is just really just a no for me. Do you have a favorite guilty pleasure you can share with with our listeners? (laughs) Well, I love potato chips like you. Um, My favorite guilty pleasure, it's got to be, you know, I'm, there are many things I could say, but probably my favorite is cake. Um, It really is. A really great, perfectly baked yellow cake with goopy chocolate frosting. I don't think there's much better for me. There are many other things I love. People, food, furniture, but that. A really good yellow cake with the right goofy chocolate frosting, and you've got me. My guest today has been Alex Guarnaschelli. Alex, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Of course. Did we talk about money? (laughs) (laughs) More than enough.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.